Well, we Christians believe that, like Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. There'll be struggle and suffering, sadness, conflict, pain, sickness, disease, even death. We Christians also believe that God is sovereign over all of that, and he has purposes for it, mysterious purposes, often, but purposes nonetheless. We also believe that some of these purposes can be known, and some of these purposes for God's use of suffering and pain and sickness, struggle, conflict, is for us to feel our need for him, for us to pray to him for help, intervention, for him to work, for him to step in. Part of the reason God puts us in those seasons of suffering, small or great, is so that we will, in the process, feel helped by him, whether through the circumstances changing or in his sustaining power and presence in the midst of painful circumstances. In other words, we Christians believe that something is happening behind the scenes at every moment. Something is happening behind the scenes. You can't see it. We believe it's there. We believe there's an unseen realm where prayers reach God, and he hears, and he works on our behalf. That he gives us more than enough comfort, according to 2 Corinthians 1. That he gives us peace that's beyond understanding, according to Philippians 4. That he's working this thing, this horrible thing, perhaps, for our good, according to Romans 8. That he's shaping us into the image of Christ in the process of these painful circumstances. Christians also believe, both from experience and from the Bible's teaching, that it's a work of faith to truly embrace that. It's a work of faith to believe that something is happening behind the scenes, something that's unseen. It's a work of faith to act like it's real, to act like prayers are real, to act like he really hears. It's a work of faith to believe that he's doing something even when we can't see it or even when it doesn't feel like it. But how do we know? How do we know that God is doing something behind the scenes when we're suffering? The Bible tells us so. That's one answer. But it's not just the Bible tells us like it tells us in statements and facts and promises. The Bible also shows us again and again and again, story after story, time and time again, our God, it's just who he is and what he does. He is near to the brokenhearted. He cares. He works. He helps. His love is over all his works. The Bible shows us that. And story after story, time and time again. That's part of how we know that God is doing something behind the scenes today in our own lives. It's no small way in which we encourage ourselves that he's really there and he does care and he is at work. We simply remember his ways of old. We replay his highlight reels. And then we see him working behind the scenes in those stories of the Bible. Those stories of need, those stories of help, those stories of miraculous, glorious intervention. And we remember that we 
have the same God, not a different God. And he is our God, not just their God. So today we come to a multi-layered example of this in God's word. It's Psalm 118. Turn there if you're not already there. Psalm 118. Let's read these 29 verses together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's God's word for us this morning. The what of Psalm 118 is fairly, fairly easy to discern. It's about praising the Lord, that's how it begins and ends, and praising the Lord for his unchanging love, his steadfast love. And that steadfast love, the middle part, shown in the moments of him hearing our cry, seeing our need, coming to our rescue, being our salvation, giving us help, and just being with us. Let me give you just a quick overview. Look down in your Bibles as I'm talking for the next minute or so. I'll mention some turns and twists in what we just read, some structure, if you like, for this psalm. Notice verses 1 through 4 
are a call to praise God for his steadfast love, a call to God's people for them to join in praise for God's love. Verses 5 through 9 are the next chunk, and they call out to God from the midst of this distress. Verses 10 through 13 describe that distress some more. It's life-threatening distress. It's consuming. It's like being swarmed by bees, and it's like a fire that overtakes some dry brush. Verses 14 to 18 praise God for his rescue, for his help, for his strength, his salvation, all that. It's praise. Then verses 19 and 20 look like entering into God's presence somehow, maybe in the temple. And then the rest of the psalm has just various ways of describing God's deliverance and praising him accordingly. In a word, this psalm is about deliverance. That's the what, deliverance. But the other basic questions that we could ask of this psalm, like who and why, they're not so easily discerned. Who is this psalm about? Uh, Who is speaking this psalm and who is it speaking of? Who is it speaking to? What's happening in the psalm? When was this happening? What's the occasion for writing this psalm? Well, we can't answer those questions exactly. This isn't one of those psalms that begins with a few lines at the top of a preface like Psalm 18 does. Psalm 18 begins with several lines about who wrote it and when it was written, why it was written. And then you just go to 1 Samuel to find the history there and you go, oh, okay, here's the story. Here's the context. It's easy. Not so much with Psalm 118, which doesn't have a preface, but but we can answer those kind of general questions, the who and why questions, in some general ways. And I think we can answer them in four ways specifically. That's your outline. Notice in the back of your sermon notes page there. We'll talk about four ways in which we would sing this psalm. I don't mean four possible interpretations of this psalm. I mean there are four that are right. There are four, not options, but four layers to it. Now, some of you will remember back in the day, as they say, when your teacher had uh, an overhead projector. Now, kids, an overhead projector is something that cavemen invented shortly after the wheel. And when there was nothing digital, we just scribbled on things and put uh, plastic things through light, and it went on a wall. Okay? Hopefully, you can at least picture that. And many of us experienced it. And some of us experienced teachers who would use multi-layers of slides, remember that? And they would build on one another. So one would get laid down, maybe it's a map, it would always be a picture, not like writing, but a picture or a map would get laid down, and you go, oh, okay. And then they would put another one on top, and now it's a bigger picture. It has more detail or something. Well... It's kind of like that with this psalm. We're kind of going to do that with this psalm today. We're going to look at this psalm four more times today through four different transparencies, four different lenses, you could say. Not four separate lenses, but all building on one another. So it's an unusual message. We're going to read most of this psalm four times today. Uh, It's like we're going to play a song four times today and... We'll keep getting better speakers each time, or different headphones each time, or now I'm confusing you with too many analogies, so I'll just move on 
Stop telling you what I'm going to do and just do it. The first way to look at this psalm, the first transparency we could lay down, is to say it's a song about Egypt. It's a song about Egypt. Now, Psalm 118 wasn't written during the time of Moses, but it was later written about that time. It was written about that time when Israel was a nation, many in number, but, but in slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. That story where through plagues and miracles, God rescued his people from the slavery and tyranny of the Egyptians and then began to move them into a promised land. In the Bible, it's the book of Exodus. According to the children's movie, it's called The Prince of Egypt. That's what we're talking about. If you don't know anything about the Bible, you may have seen The Prince of Egypt, and that's what we're talking about here. Those events of God rescuing his people from Egypt later became symbolic of God's whole character and his whole rescuing ways. The Exodus story became, we could say, like a prototype or emblematic of God's deliverance in general. It's hope for today based on those great stories of old, stories which are true. The Exodus story becomes a hallmark moment for God's people to look back at and find help in their, in their present trouble. In fact, Psalm 113 to 118 all do this. Psalm 113 to 118 really are a group of psalms which look back to that story of God rescuing his people from Egypt. They actually get a name. Scholars refer to Psalm 113 to 118 as the Egyptian Hallel, which means Egyptian praise, but not in praise of Egypt or Egyptians. God's praise about Egypt, songs about Egypt. So the, the people of God in the Old Testament times to the time of Jesus, in their Jewish tradition, they were usually, they, they were using these psalms in the celebration of different feasts and festivals they'd have, not least in the Passover. So part of the Passover was reading some of these Hallel, Egyptian psalms, before the meal, and then some after the meal. Psalm 118 is one of those. Okay, so now, let's look down in our Bibles Let's look at Psalm 118 through the overhead projector with the transparency of Egypt and Exodus on it. Notice in verse 1, and 2, and 3, and 4, four times it says his steadfast love endures forever. Well, if you've been with us in recent months as we've been talking about God's steadfast love as it comes up in the Psalms, we've gone back to Exodus 33 where God revealed that to be his very name. He said his name is chased, a Hebrew word which is rich in meaning. It means his covenantal, undying, complete love and kindness. So already we get a hint that this is pointing us back to this time of the Exodus, the time of Moses here, his steadfast love endures forever. You notice in verse 5 of Psalm 118, it says, Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. Now this is all in first person here in Psalm 118. That usually means it's one person speaking. But here, I think in Psalm 118, we should think of it more as a corporate 
I. It's a group. It's like Israel as a whole saying, I, I, I. That's unusual, but it doesn't really cause any problems for us. That's what I think is going on here. As it looks back at the time of Egypt and the Exodus, it's in first person, out of that distress, I called on you, we called on you, they called on you. And the Lord answered. And he set me free. He set them free. Literally, he set them free from slavery and bondage. Verse 6 says, the Lord is on my side, not the Egyptians. I will not fear. What can Pharaoh do to me? Oh, his sorcerers have little card tricks, little gimmicks to try to match God's miracles and the plagues that were put on Egypt, progressively growing, and getting worse, getting more fierce, getting more powerful. What can men do to me? What can these sorcerers do to me? What can Pharaoh do to me if the Lord's on my side? He says in verse 7, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Looking at the end of the story, looking from the end of the story, we know that they were in triumph eventually in the face of those who hated them. Thus, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in a man, not least to trust in a prince or a pharaoh. Verse 10 says, All nations surrounded me. You can imagine how, how the Israelites as they were on the run and Pharaoh's army was on the chase. They felt surrounded. They felt desperate. It felt like they were on every side at times. It felt like that army, great in number, were like angry bees. Like it was a, a, a trouble growing like fire among dry thorns. As a group, look at verse 13, they were pushed hard. They were falling both in their captivity and before God brought them out away from Pharaoh and under his thumb. The Lord helped them. Verse 14, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song. Now it turns to praise in light of the fact that he has become my salvation. Verse 14 here in Psalm 118 is actually a quote from Moses. Moses said these very words in Exodus 15 too. So you know this is a psalm about Exodus, about God freeing his people from Egypt, from the slavery of Pharaoh. And now as they travel in the wilderness, look at verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous because the right hand of the Lord has done great things. He's acted valiantly. He's exalted The right hand of the Lord has exalted and done valiantly. A quote from Exodus 15.6, where Moses prayed there. So now as a nation, verse 17, they shall not die. They shall live. And why? Why has God saved them and rescued them again and again? That they may recount the deeds of the Lord. So remember, don't forget what he's done. Remember, remember, remember. One of the most frequently repeated commandments of the Old Testament. The Lord, yes, disciplined them severely for a time, for many hundreds of years, actually. From Abraham to Moses, yeah, from Abraham to Moses, you have 430 years. And now he stepped in 
Now he has rescued them. He's even disciplined them at times in the wilderness, in their wanderings, because they're complaining, because they're unbelief, but he hasn't, as a whole, given them over to death. Verse 19 says, Open to me the gates of the righteous. Where were they going as they traveled in the wilderness? Well, they were getting there slowly, but they were going to a promised land, weren't they? God promised them that from right at the beginning. Open to me the gates of the righteous. They're going to a place. They are envisioning that time when they will enter through them, and there in that land flowing with milk and honey, they'll give thanks to the Lord. Look at verse 22. It says here, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone would have been in these days, a first stone to be laid down in a corner. It was very important that that be a true stone. Right angles, crisp lines. You had to pick a good cornerstone. And so there were other stones that maybe could be, stone, could be cornerstones. You'd look at it, you'd evaluate it and say, how about this one? Someone smarter than you would come along and go, no, look, it, it's got this bend right here. We, no. You need a good cornerstone. And so verse 22 says, there's a stone that the builders have rejected. They thought it was a bad cornerstone. But instead, it's become the cornerstone. This is referring, in the first instance, to Israel as a nation. As a nation, they were rejected. As a nation, they were thought to be little and weak. And yet, it was God's precious cornerstone for his plan, wasn't it? This is the Lord's doing, though, not their doing. Verse 23, it's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so looking back on that day, they say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, you might like to say that many times in a year, maybe every single day. Maybe it's a frequent thing in your prayers in the morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's certainly not wrong to say that every day. It's certainly true that the Lord has made every day. It's certainly true that we should rejoice in every day. But this here in Psalm 118 is talking about a very specific day. It's not saying next Tuesday is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's looking back to the time of Egypt, and the Passover, and God's rescue of his people, putting them faithfully in a land. The day is in a 24-hour period here in this verse. It's a, a period of time. This is the day, the time, the thing the Lord has made. It's marvelous in our eyes. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So you can see, hopefully, that this is a song about Egypt. It's a song about the Exodus. But secondly, it's a song for exiles. It's a song for exiles. Psalm 118 was most likely written at the end of the Babylonian captivity. So we have to go to another key moment in God's plan. There was first the Exodus story with Moses and God freeing them from Egypt, bringing them through the land to a promised land. But Many hundreds of years later, 
You have God's people now, after King David, after some good kings, a whole lot of bad kings, a whole lot of waywardness in God's people, God finally chastising them with a timeout. A timeout from his presence, in a sense. A timeout from their worship, in a sense. A timeout from the land. So they're taken in captivity to Babylon for 70 years. That's the time of exiles. These people are exiles. They're captive in another land. And after the 70 years, God's people are now starting to return from Babylon and starting to return to Jerusalem, their hometown. The city was ruined in war. Now they have to rebuild the city. They have to start with the walls to keep out the bad guys. And they also have to rebuild the temple. The temple was ruined when Jerusalem was sacked. These are the days in your Bible of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's not very convenient the last books of the Old Testament, as far as the storyline goes, are so far into the Old Testament. They're about one-third the way into the Old Testament, not, not you know, toward the very end where the prophets are. But nevertheless, this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, the days when the exiles were returning to Jerusalem. So now, let's look down in our Bibles, and let's run through Psalm 118, With the projector on the screen here, let's put the Ezra and Nehemiah slide on top, this slide of exiles returning and rebuilding. We'll start in verse 10. Notice it says, all nations surrounded me. I mean, Israel throughout its history always felt like the nations had surrounded them. I mean, when they were small in number before the time of great David and Solomon... They felt surrounded and always at at threat. And now as they're returning to Jerusalem after their Babylonian timeout, guess what? Here come the enemies again. They're taking advantage of weak Jerusalem with no city walls. And so as they're trying to build, it's it's like they've got mortar in one hand and a sword in another. And they're trying to poke and get the enemies away and build and build. And it's a mess. All the nations surrounded me. On every side, they're like bees. They're like fire among thorns. God's people, once again, are being pushed hard. They're falling. But the Lord helped them. The Lord helped them. Back up to verse 5. Here are these calling out and rescuing verses. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. On the one hand, God didn't release them from Babylon because of their prayers. I mean, the plan was, you spend 70 years there, and then we'll take you home. But no doubt, some, like Daniel, did pray to the Lord. Some, like Nehemiah, prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered them. The Lord set them free from Babylon. Why? Because the Lord is on my side, they say. Uh, They won't fear. What can man do to me? Daniel, what an example in this exile, in Babylon, of this this saying, what can man do to me? So they conclude, at least the best of God's people at that time, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. No matter what king it is, no matter what government it is, no matter how good the country has been to you, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. 
His love endures forever. What a great time to remember that his steadfast love is still enduring. It endures forever. That's why the psalm begins on that theme. Even in his discipline and even after his discipline, his steadfast love endures forever. Look at verse 14 of Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation in praise to God Now they rejoice in the salvation of their God with glad songs in the tents of the righteous. They say, just like generations before, those who were rescued out of Egypt, the right hand of the Lord has done valiantly. The Lord has exalted, he's lifted up. And they shall not die. Look at verse 17. As a nation, they can say, I shall not die, but I shall live. Once again, Why? To recount the deeds of the Lord. That's why God has saved them. That's why God has brought them back. Yes, the Lord, verse 18, has disciplined them severely. But he's not given them over to death. He has a plan still. What's the plan? Well, part of the plan, the immediate plan, is for them to get back home and to rebuild the temple. So, verse 19, Open to me the gates of the righteous, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous enter into it. When you hear gate, in these times, if you're a Bible guy, if you're one of God's people, you hear gate, you think God's city, you think God's temple, especially in a context of worship like this. And then these key verses, verse 22, 23, 24, look at these. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Once again, just like it was in the days of Egypt, Israel has been rejected. Small in number, always in battle, seemingly threatened at every turn. But that stone that looked unworthy, like it didn't work broken, like it wouldn't be a cornerstone in God's plan, is indeed still being the cornerstone. But not by their doing, it's the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So now it's a new day, isn't it? Here we are thousands of years later, and they're saying, as they write this down for the first time, looking back to God's people rescued in Egypt, now making it their own and saying, he has done great things. It is marvelous in our sight. This day of us coming back from Babylon is the day that the Lord has made, so we'll rejoice and be glad in it. Well, remember that Psalm 118 was written at that time. It looks backwards the time of Egypt and Exodus, and it looks around to their own present time, their own present day of deliverance. But is that it? Is that where it stops? We sang about Jesus being a cornerstone already. We gave it away, didn't we? That's the third slide we need to put on the overhead projector on top of these. That Psalm 118 is a song for Jesus. It's a song about Egypt, a song for exiles, and fast forward some more, it's a song for Jesus. Now verses 22 to 26 of Psalm 118, you see those verses in your Bible? 
Those are some of the most quoted Old Testament verses in the New Testament. And that language of cornerstone is used seven times in the New Testament. Each of them refers to Jesus is that, as that cornerstone. In fact, Jesus himself quotes from Psalm 118 and refers to himself as the cornerstone. And that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not just once, three times, they all record it. So now turn with me to Matthew 21. Would you go there? Bear with me. I know this is half sermon, half let me read the Bible to you. We could do worse, though, than reading lots of Bible together. Let's spend some time in Matthew 21. Keep your finger in uh, Psalm 118. We'll be back there. What we'll see in Matthew 21, in verse 42, is there we find the cornerstone language of Psalm 118 being quoted. We'll end up in verse 42, verse 42 but let's get a running start first. Matthew 21 begins by Jesus getting a donkey and riding into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry, like a king entering his city after a victory. And he enters the city on the donkey, and look at verse 8 of Matthew 21. It says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Now, it's easily missed that in Psalm 118, is your finger still there? Turn back there. In verse 25, when it says, save us, we pray, that's a Hebrew word there called Hosanna. So you notice the next verse, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is something we just read from Matthew 21. That's part of what the people were shouting. They were also shouting Hosanna. In other words, they were quoting Psalm 118. They were saying, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. Blessed is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, now in Matthew 21, go back there. There's more we could see in Matthew 21, but we'll skip ahead to a parable that Jesus says right before he gives us that, that mighty nugget of a quote about the cornerstone. The parable that comes before is, a, I'll just paraphrase it, it's a parable about a master who plants a vineyard and then he puts some people in charge of it. He sort of leases it out. They're called tenants who run the, the, the land. And as he goes away, he sends eventually his servants in to reap from the crops that the tenants have been managing. But when those servants go in, the tenants, the leasers, kill his servants. So the man, very patiently, decides to send his son. Look at verse 37. Finally, this master sent his son to them. He thought, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out in the vineyard, and they killed him. Jesus is obviously talking about himself here. He's the son who the tenants will kill. These religious leaders are the tenants who've been entrusted with God's stuff. 
and yet they don't get the master. They want to kill his son. So now verse 42. It is after this that Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? Can you guess where he's quoting? Psalm 118, he's quoting, saying, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He goes on to say, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the cornerstone is Jesus. Jesus here is saying, Psalm 118 was pointing to me. I'm the cornerstone rejected, but now precious and perfect and necessary for God's building. But not everyone will see this cornerstone as a cornerstone and will see this cornerstone as precious. Some will stumble on it and somehow it will fall on them. It will crush them. No surprise that Peter picks up on this when he preaches in Acts 4 and he quotes from Psalm 118. He says that this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone And so he concludes, there is salvation in no one else. If he's the cornerstone of God's plan, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Now let's turn back to Psalm 118 and give that a glance through a Jesus lens. Let's play the song again with Jesus' headphones on. But as you do that, you have to keep this in mind. Remember that Psalm 113 to 118 were a group of psalms about the Passover that God's people would often read at at festivals and feasts like the Passover. That's what our Lord did most likely when he celebrated the Passover with his disciples on the night before he was betrayed. You know how it says when the gospel accounts tell the story, after they ate of the Passover meal, it says, and they sang a hymn and went out. That was an amazing grace. They didn't sing nothing but the blood. What they sang last was Psalm 118. They sang Psalm 118, then went out, and then begins the 12-hour countdown until Jesus' crucifixion. Keep that in mind as we look at Psalm 118. It's not just a song about Jesus. It is a song for Jesus. In verse 10, all nations surrounded me. They've surrounded me on every side. They're like bees. They are like a fire among the thorns. You can just imagine Jesus in those last 12 to 18 hours before his death, the Roman guards riling him, hurling insults, beating him, the crowd like bees all around him. He was pushed hard, verse 13 says, and he was falling, but the Lord helped him. Think of how the Spirit sustained Jesus in the garden the night before, right before his arrest. 
Think of God raising him from the dead on the third day. He was pushed hard so that he was failing, but the Lord helped him. Think of all the resurrection language that you find, like in verses 17. It says, I shall not die, but I shall live. I know Jesus died, but there's, that's one way of saying death didn't fully grab him. He died completely, but his resurrection was a victory over death, and so he shall live to recount the deeds of the Lord. Verse 18 says the Lord has disciplined him severely, not because of his sin, though. It's because he bore our discipline. He bore our chastisement. Jesus can say more than any of us, Open to me, verse 19, the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Like the psalmist, Jesus heads to the temple. And not just there to praise God, not just there to give sacrifice, but there to be sacrifice. He himself going into the gates with thanksgiving as a sacrifice bound with cords, like verse 27 says. Now, verse 22, here's the key. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Whatever happened to Israel through the ages of them being rejected and yet God exalting them has now happened supremely in Jesus, whom the builders of Israel itself, these religious leaders, have rejected. But the rejection is the very means by which God will exalt him. Their rejection of the stone proves... He's the precious cornerstone. That's the Lord's doing. That is marvelous. Isn't it? That's the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now when we say, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Or when we sing those words with our kids perhaps, now we can be thinking, Not just, it's Tuesday. It's going to be a good day. Because it's the Lord's day. He made it. We got to be happy. Come on, kids. Oh, it's that and so much more, right? I mean, it was the day when God rescued his people out of Egypt. It was the day when he brought his people home from exile in Babylon and the temple was rebuilt and they entered into Thanksgiving once again. And it was the day when Jesus died our death, became our sacrifice, entered into the holy place for us. The nations surrounded him like bees, like a fire. It didn't matter. God was with him. God helped him. God raised him from the dead for our justification. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a song for Jesus. Fourthly, it's a song for you. Is it a song for you? Is Jesus a precious cornerstone or a stumbling block? Do you see this one who died on a cross as dumb or wise? As a loser or victorious, as weak or strong.
Oh, I can see how you'd see it the wrong way. God revealed himself like that. In foolishness, 1 Corinthians 1 says, so that he would get the glory when, we, when he reveals it to us. In 1 Peter 2, this cornerstone language is described some more. Listen to this. It says, as you, Christian, as you come to him, you come to a living stone. He was rejected by man, but in the sight of God, he's chosen. He's precious. And you yourselves are like living stones now. You're connected to the cornerstone. You're being built up as a spiritual house. You're now a holy priesthood. You now enter into the gates to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So much better than returning from Babylon to Jerusalem is we now are in a spiritual temple together connected to Christ himself as the cornerstone. That's what scripture said. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, quoting Isaiah 28. And whoever believes in me shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for those of you who believe, but here's a caveat, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It is a stone of stumbling for some. It is a rock of offense to some. Is this a song for you? That Jesus is your cornerstone. That there is a day the Lord has made that you can rejoice in and be glad because Jesus died and died in your place. This is the truest deliverance. Jesus is the truest and final deliverance. He's the capital D, deliverer. Those previous stories of deliverance in the Old Testament weren't useless but they successively build upon another until we come to the crescendo, the climax in Jesus. A cornerstone so much more profound, more sure, more universal, more eternal, more perfect. We're delivered from sin by means of this cornerstone. According to Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now in him, not just the forgiveness of sins, but we're in him and we are part of this new temple. And if he's been this sacrificially merciful to us, then we can trust him with apparent distresses of various kinds today and tomorrow. We need to know his nearness. In light of all of this, in light of these stories, story after story, time and time again, of God showing his care and his nearness, his goodness, his mercy, his patience, his strength, his help, we need to know that his nearness and his help is with us today in the midst of our distresses. That God is the same God and that God is our God. Martin Luther called Psalm 118... My own beloved psalm. He saw a foreshadow of Christ in Psalm 118. But he also saw something of his own story there. I wonder if you do. So let's do it one more time. This time with feeling. (laughs) Let's play that song once more and let's lay the transparency of self on the projector of Psalm 118. Can we say in verse 5, 
that in our various distresses we call on the Lord? Can we resolve to believe the Lord is on our side? Verse 6, we have no reason to fear. What can man do to me? Did you know Hebrews 13 quotes verse 6 here? Hebrews 13 says, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, and then it quotes Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's better to trust the Lord than to trust in man or to trust in princes. Don't trust in presidents either. Verse 10, even if all nations would surround you on every side, let alone the neighbor mad at you, the boss not liking you, a cousin who won't speak to you, whatever. Even if all the nations surround me, who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Even when we're pushed hard and we feel like we're falling, like verse 13 says, we can say, the Lord helped me. Something was happening behind the scenes. He comforted me. He strengthened me. He gave me wisdom. He gave me a peace that passes all understanding. Oh, I felt terribly weak in the process. But he had purposes for that too. That he would show me his strength and so that his strength would feel like strength and not my strength. We won't die. Not ultimately. We shall live. We shall have eternal life. Verse 17 reminds us that we might recount the deeds of the Lord. That's why he saved us. And that's why one day he will open up the gates of righteousness to us. He's already done that on a spiritual level where we experience his presence day in and day out and in corporate worship. But one day we shall enter the pearly gates. Gates once again. So we might give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This day is better than any day. The day where Jesus became our hope. The day when his light shone upon us. Will you say with me, like verse 28 says, You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Will we call on each other? And all the world to say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he, his good, and his covenant unending love, it's forever. He's shown us that again and again and again. He'll keep doing that.